Amen. I want you to know it is so good to see all of you here and for all of you who are joining us online. It is always a delight to gather with God's people around the world to worship Him. And this morning, we have a real privilege of having Dr. Ken Horton. This is a longtime friend of mine. He's been at Fellowship for at many different times over the years. He's been a great encouragement to me and to our elders and to all of us at our church. Uh, Dr. Horton was a senior pastor in McKinney uh, at McKinney Memorial Bible Church, as well as spending a lot of time in Fort Worth. And he is discipling and launching multipliers around the world. So, Dr. Horton, we're so glad to have you back with us. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Grant. And it is a delight to be with you again uh, this morning. As Grant has mentioned, and all of us know, we are at a very pivotal time uh, in our nation. Uh, And it's a time where there's great conflict. Uh, When Jesus stood on that sloping hillside near the Sea of Galilee and delivered the message that we're considering in recent weeks, Israel was in a similar season. Uh, They were under the oppressive rule of Rome. Uh, They were a cauldron of ethnic, religious, economic, and political hostility. It was tribalism on steroids. Jesus had a message for them that day. And this morning, we're going to look at that message for us today. It's a message that could be entitled, Enlarging Credibility During an Epidemic of Conflict. It does seem that our nation is at a standoff. It's like there are two mobs of people facing each other. Uh, And this, this picture shows separated by a barrier, and some peace officers. And in that kind of environment, Jesus has wisdom for us. He has the ability to take this season of election in the midst of a global pandemic and position us for even greater opportunity to serve him in a world that's desperate for the message of hope and unity that is ultimately found in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want us to begin by reading the words that we have in Matthew's gospel, verses, chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. This brief portion of the Sermon on the Mount gives us four critical essentials. It talks about biblical clarity and relational consistency and spiritual credibility and supernatural empowerment. Here's what he says. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. Over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins these sections with, you have heard it said. He's addressing the distortions that had accumulated over the centuries after Moses gave the law through God's instruction on Mount Sinai. And as Jesus clarifies both their intentional distortions and their cultural confusions, he shows us that what Moses had to say is in harmony ultimately with what Jesus teaches and what Paul describes in his letters. There is a harmony of ethical truth in the Scripture. Jesus reminds us that there's a part of the Scripture that speaks specifically about loving your neighbor. It's Leviticus 19. But the thing that they'd added to Leviticus 19 was the next phrase, hate your enemy. Israel had many enemies. They hated the Romans. They hated the Samaritans for different reasons. They hated the tax collectors because they were collaborators with the Romans. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were at odds with each other. There were many different currents of hostility, intra and external to the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. And as he addresses this issue, we need to look back at Leviticus chapter 19, where Jesus is quoting a portion of that passage. Let me read it for you, Leviticus 19. Now, you need to know the context of Leviticus 19, verses 11 through 16 is a context of generosity to the poor. Gather your crops so that people who are poor can gather around the edges and get the food they need. This is what Ruth did when she was trying to provide for Naomi and for herself. It's in the context of personal and financial integrity. It's in the context of kindness to those who have infirmities. It's an affirmation of justice for both rich and poor. And then in verse 17, he says this, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now that passage does have a focus on the relationship of the people of Israel with each other. But what they had done is they had taken the explicit pronouncement not to hate their brothers and transformed it into an explicit encouragement to hate people that weren't their kinsmen. And Jesus is making it clear that that is a distortion. That is a distortion. The biblical clarity that we need if we're going to be faithful to God is a clarity that is essential. If you can move to the next slide, biblical clarity. There we go. 
You see these two pictures? One is a picture that you can keep in focus. One is a picture that is very obscured. And people throughout the centuries have taken the clear truths of scriptures and obscured them. I grew up in the South, and as long as I could remember, one of the things I heard at church and in my home was, you do not drink. My dad didn't drink. I didn't know he didn't drink because he'd had trouble with alcohol when he was in the military. We just didn't drink. It was easy. A couple of times when I tried it, I didn't like it. So it was an easy thing to go along with. Went to college and I made enough of a fool of myself when I was sober. I didn't need any help. So I decided this is probably not a good plan for me. It was easy. And then I went to Oregon and people in Oregon who are Christians, they had a different perspective. I went to a hamburger cookout and my best buddies who I knew loved God and were serving God and sharing Christ, they cooked the hamburgers and brought out a chest of beer. And I'm thinking, whoa, 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 what's, what's, what's this? And what I noticed is they all had one beer with their hamburger, and then they got another beer, and they sipped on that beer for about three hours. Not a single one of them got remotely near inebriation. And I said, well, maybe I, may I need to go back and look at this a little more clearly. And what I discovered is the Bible does not say do not drink. It says, don't get drunk. Now, easy commandment for me to obey. Maybe not easy for some of you. And the closer the boundaries need to be, the greater the struggle for you in that situation. My problem isn't going to a bar. My problem is going to marble creamery. That's the issue that I have. But it was a distortion that really caused some people to discount other things the Bible said because they knew that they weren't hearing the straight scoop from what the Bible said about that one isolated issue. Paul in Romans chapter 7 says, don't believe those who say sin more so that you'll have more grace. May Should we sin so that we'll... Grace will abound, and Paul says, may it, sort of a, a, a righteous expletive. May it never be. That's a distortion. And so we have to be sure that we're looking at what the Bible actually says and following it. And what happened in this particular case, they had taken the exhortation to love their brothers and the specific command not to hate their brothers and come up with the conclusion that they were actually encouraged to hate their enemies. The Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus is giving them biblical clarity. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 12 makes it very explicit. Do not hate your enemies. And by the way, when you and I trusted Christ, Romans 5 says we were God's enemies. Don't hate your enemies, it says. It tells us in Leviticus 19 that we ought to wisely address the conflicts of life. We dealt with that a couple of months ago. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, 26 and 27 and 32. We need to be honest about our hurts. We need to do it in a loving way. We need to forgive people proactively, whether they are asking for forgiveness or not. And we need to allow God to bring healing in relationships realizing that both people need want to ha have to want healing 
in order to experience that healing. Leviticus 19 says, don't seek revenge or hold grudges. Bitterness is corrosive. You think you're hurting the other person and you're destroying yourself. And then you and I, as we deal with the issues of hurt and hostility, we need to be ready to pray always. We need to be willing to deal with the issue in appropriate circumstances, and we need to never seek revenge. When you're trying to address the issue, you're not trying to hurt the other person. You're trying to allow the person to experience God's grace so that they might be forgiven and restored, not only to you, but to the relationship that they have with God or they could have with God. Whenever we distort God's truth in any area, but particularly in the area of our relationships, we harm ourselves, we damage our relationships, and we diminish our joy. Years ago, there was a lady that came to me and shared with me that her father had sexually abused her. She and her husband came, and we began to work through those issues, and they were getting counsel, and they decided they wanted to go see her dad and mom and share with them what had happened. And I went with them at their request. The father rejected any notion of that. He refused to acknowledge it. The mother stuck with the, stuck with the father And now they were in a situation where they were sort of at a standoff. She had forgiven her father. The father was mad that they would not let the children come spend the night with them. But she said, Dad, I could never allow my children to be in a home with you. There were hard issues there. There were boundaries that had to be established. There wasn't a happy ending in that situation. But there was a desire to be faithful to God in light of the biblical clarity of God's word and address the issues in hopes that eventually the one who had harmed them would be willing to admit what had happened. As far as I know, he never acknowledged it. Reconciliation is not guaranteed, but faithfulness and wisdom and obedience to God is the path of blessing, at least for yourself and sometimes in the relationships that you have. We need biblical clarity in the midst of a hurting world. In the midst of the political environment, you need to vote. It's a matter of stewardship. But you're going to discover that not everybody sees things the way you do. And it's not inappropriate to avoid conversations that you know are going to have explosive results. I've discovered that when you ask people what they think, and then ask them why they think what they think, you might find some sliver of agreement that you can affirm, and you might have enough credibility to ask a question that allows you to at least begin a conversation without there being immediate fireworks. But in some situations, when you see that there's any difference at all, they cancel you. We can't keep people from counseling us if we disagree about things. That's reality. But even if a person is harsh toward you, you do not have to respond in like fashion. 
It may be best to give them plenty of room. But you have the opportunity to be in prayer for them, to be wise and relating to them, and to ask God to continue to work in your life. When I owned a home, we had a fence that blew down in some windstorm. And when we repaired the fence and put it back up, apparently we went three inches on the neighbor's yard. And he was an engineer. And what do engineers do? They measure things. And he came and knocked on my door. He said, uh, Mr. Horton, your fence is on my yard and it's on my property. I said, are you sure? And I went out and measured. And he was right. Just that far. And I said, what do you want me to do? Can I pay you something to sort of make it right? I mean, what? Because it was a half a day job to move that fence at least. You got to move your fence. And so a couple of friends and I, we moved the fence. And then I had a challenge. How do I treat that neighbor? Because I was ticked, to be honest. I was unhappy about having to do that. But he was right. I was wrong. And I said, God, help me be more encouraging, more helpful, more kind to this man, even though he made my life more difficult. That's not official persecution. That's more aggravation. But sometimes we can't even handle aggravation in our lives, right? Much less persecution. We need biblical clarity. Secondly, we need relational consistency. Jesus says, but I say to you, the, you've heard in the past that hate your enemies and love your neighbor. I say to you, love your enemies. Exactly what Paul repeats in Romans chapter 12. He goes beyond don't hate your enemies and says proactively love them. Pray for those who persecute you. I've discovered it is hard to pray for somebody consistently and still hate them personally. That's been counsel that I've given to many people. When they're in a deep conflict with somebody and they particularly don't see a way to be involved in seeking any restoration, uh, I encourage them to start praying for them every day. Pray for God's blessing for them. Pray for God's work in their life. Pray for them to come to know Christ or begin to grow in their, their faith in Christ. If you pray for them every day, God will begin to do something in your life that will give you more and more freedom and more and more grace so that you're not stirred up with animosity every time you think about this person in your life. Love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. Jesus did that, didn't he, on the cross? Paul did that. Pray for people that harm you because they are not the ultimate adversary. We have an adversary, Satan himself, he came to steal, kill, and destroy, and he uses unhappy and unhealthy people in all kinds of ways as instruments in that process. But the people we're dealing with are people for whom Christ died. And you and I need to pray that God will work in their lives. And as you do that, he says, you will be like your Father in heaven. You see, God gives the rain 
and the sunshine on the good and the bad, the righteous and the unrighteous. What a beautiful sunrise this morning. I drove down from Fort Worth, and the sun was rising in the east. What a beautiful morning. And whether you were a follower of Christ or a complete reprobate, you got to enjoy that sunrise. We've had pretty good rain this year. Last few weeks, not so much, but overall good rain in Texas, which is a good thing. Fell on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, God's a God in temporal terms who gives blessings to every person. Every person on the planet has experienced blessings from a God who created them in his image. Now, God gives his blessings in a way where it does not affirm the wickedness of man and it does not eliminate the consequences of their sin. God's blessing doesn't mean that the spiritual issues in life don't matter. It just means in the temple realm, God indiscriminately blesses people. And you and I need to be people who aren't calculating whether the person we're blessing is deserving of that blessing. I wake up every day and I say, God, help me be an encouragement to anybody I meet that needs encouragement. And my operating assumption is everybody I meet needs encouragement. I may not have the opportunity, but they need encouragement. And it's been amazing to see some of the little nuggets of of encouragement that I've given to people. Not enough to have a full-fledged spiritual conversation, but enough to just assure them that they're doing a good job with that kid that's misbehaving. When they're in a line and that child, that's a danger zone, isn't it, ladies? Men, too. You ever take your kid? Men try not to take their kids shopping, I'm sure, but, but sometimes the wives don't have any choice. But in the midst of that environment, when the mom feels like they're being sabotaged by that three-year-old, when the drama slows down a little bit just to say, you know, you're going to be fine. That child's going to be fine. We, everybody here understands what you're going through. Instead of them feeling like, what a terrible parent I am. Just those little blessings of encouragement on the righteous and the unrighteous. You don't know where they are spiritually, but be a blessing to them. Because you and I, when we do that, are in harmony with a God who loves to bless people. No matter where they are at this moment in their spiritual process. And those blessings are a part of God in many cases, finally drawing someone to Jesus Christ. You love people best when you encourage them, if at all possible, and when you address conflicts wisely. You and I need to be tender in our love and tough in our love. Some of us are good at tough love. Others are good at tender love. If you're good at tender love, you need to make sure you've got a friend that's good at tough love so that when you do really have a big conflict to work through, you take them with you to help you. Now, I saw a few of you poking your spouse there, so that's not really fair. Uh, but if you're good at tough love, you need to learn from people that are good at tender love and maybe let them be the, do the talking, at least at the start, of any issue that's tough. People need tough love and tender love. We need to do the things that address conflicts. We need to be 
able and willing to, uh, to hinder violence. Somebody at one point asked me a question about, you know, would you, would you protect your family? I said, absolutely. I'd stop whatever was happening if they were going to hurt my family. You see, this loving of other people includes loving those that you're responsible for. But once you've stopped the violence, you don't continue to hurt somebody. If at all possible, you get the government authorities that are actually designed to help hinder those things in, in, in the proper circumstances and address those issues in that setting. You and I need to deal with issues, deal with conflicts, but do it in a way that is looking for the long-term best interest of the person that we're involved with. Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 makes a statement. He said, if a person is not willing to work, don't let them eat. Does that sound like tender love or tough love? Pretty tough, right? That was sort of my dad's attitude about whenever I'd say I didn't want to go to church. He said, well, you don't get to eat till you go to church. So you, you get to pick them when you're going to be, at, be going with us. Now, what was the context in Thessalonians? Thessalonica. Paul had taught them that Jesus was coming back. And some people had distorted the word of God and said, if he's coming back, I'll just quit working and let everybody else take care of me till he shows up. And Paul says, no, that's not going to work. And if you get hungry enough, you'll get back in your job where God can bless you as a steward of whatever responsibilities will allow you to experience life as he intends. You and I are called to relate in consistency with our heavenly father we pursue peace as i mentioned this involves protecting our family engaging uh, authorities when needed it's a part of a process where we deal with the reality of real dangers but do it with a focus on what is a blessing ultimately to the people who may need to be restrained That's the kind of world we live in. That's how God deals with us. And we need to be consistent with that. My father, powerful influence in my life, his dad died in 1940. And the day my grandfather died, who was not a Christian, my grandfather was not a Christian, he told my dad, work hard and be honest. And boy, my dad took that to heart. Somewhere after he came back from World War II, after a time far away from God, he had trusted Christ as a 12-year-old, but somewhere in the late 40s, he made a commitment he was going to love God. He had trusted Christ, and he began to grow as a Christian, and so I heard those things. Work hard. That was the universal solution to every problem. Be honest and love God. He never told me to bless people. He didn't have to. Because he was a blessing machine. He just blessed people. He didn't think there was any disconnect between loving God and blessing people. He just sort of lived out the reality. Those were connected. And when we do those things, when we live that kind of life, there's this consistency between the God who made us and our relationships with people that people pick up. It makes them curious. It makes them interested in hearing more about what it means to have a relationship with God. 
And as that happens, as there's a relationship, as there's, as there's relational consistency between us and our heavenly Father, we gain spiritual credibility. He says in verse 46, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? You see, when you're with people who sense Christ, they sort of smell Jesus, that aroma of Christ, you gain spiritual credibility. And if you act like everybody else, they won't really notice any difference. But when you love people that are harmful or hurtful to you or are angry at you, when you are really committed to their best interest, when you're praying for people that have canceled you in your circle of friends, when you genuinely want their best interest, people will pay attention. When you live like everybody else, they probably won't even know you're a Christian. In fact, it's never a good sign when people are surprised to find out you're a Christian. That's never good. And what Jesus is saying is they shouldn't be surprised. In fact, they should know pretty sure that you're one of my followers because you've got the kind of credibility, the kind of character, the kind of commitment to do your best, the kind of kindness to people that allows them to sense that you belong to to God. This kind of obedience put the spotlight on God's presence in our lives. It gives us greater credibility in the relationships of life, so people are interested in our perspective. People are willing to talk to us about things that we might even disagree with. It encourages a, a sense of triumphant confidence in life. Uh, lots of stress about the election. Lots of stress, depending on where you are and what you think. You and I need to be faithful to our responsibility to make the best decision we can about voting. But we need to be certain that no matter who wins next Tuesday, a week from Tuesday, there will not be an emergency room and there will not be an emergency meeting in heaven. Because Jesus Christ is leading his followers toward triumph doesn't mean things won't be hard doesn't mean things won't be good won't they may be good or it's going to go up and down and there'll be all kinds of different factors in life but at the end of the day when judgment finally falls upon the whole world jesus christ will triumph and that sense of confidence no matter what's happening that sense of certainty that it's always too soon to lose heart is one of the great evidences of the kind of credibility that God uses to give people an openness to be involved in spiritual conversations. We do not control other people. We can't compel them to work through the differences that we have. But we are able to gently share our perspectives with them without fear, with a sense of confidence and kindness that might open conversations that would never be possible if we focus just on 
how upset we are that we disagree. You can't control how upset they are. You just need to make, need to make sure that you're calm and focused on being a blessing to them, if at all possible. And then finally, when you have biblical clarity and relational consistency, that is, you are treating people the way a perfect heavenly father does, blessing them and seeking to be a blessing no matter where they are spiritually without confusing the issues about the biblical truths involved, you need supernatural empowerment. He says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, that ought to stop in your tracks. You and I are not perfect, not even remotely close to perfect, but we have a heavenly father who's given us his, the spirit of God so that we have the power to relate to people in ways that keep reflecting the truth about God. Ephesians says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that is at work within us. You and I are called to relate to people in a way that reflects a perfect heavenly father. As I shared a couple of months ago, we are the mirror, God is the sun. If we're in the right position so that our lives give sort of a full moon reflection of who God is, a glorious reflection of who God is, we will be useful to God in significant ways. Several things that we need to do. We need to put on God's armor because this is a time of real conflict and turmoil and difficulty. Uh, Stand firm in Christ the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sword of the Spirit. We need to make sure we are prepared. We need to focus on the opportunity to be a blessing to others. We need to forgive because Christ forgave us. If somebody's harsh, don't put any gasoline on that fire. Pull back and look for a way to be a blessing. When somebody's hostile and they have a child... Take a, take a dish over to them. If they have a heartache, take some food or to get, offer to help in some way. As we grow in wisdom, learn how to practice both tender and tough love wisely. That is a gained, a learned pattern because you'll make some mistakes along the way. And then finally, pray always. Pray always. No matter who wins the election, 1 Timothy tells us to pray for those in authority. Pray that God will give them wisdom. Pray that God will bless their family. Pray that God will help them do anything that is honoring to God. And I think it's fair to pray that God will hinder them from doing the things that are harmful to our nation or dishonoring to God. But pray, less talking And more prayer will be a paradigm for wisdom as we move into the future where the turmoil won't stop when the election is over. You and I have the privilege of serving God in the midst of a unique time. It is a time of great uncertainty. It is a time of great stress. The pandemic has upped the ante. The political issues have intensified the the, the turmoil. And in just that kind of time, God wants to give you the supernatural empowerment 
to serve him, to be his light in the midst of the darkness that so often prevails around us. I want to show you a picture of a young man. His name is Brant. His brother Botham was sitting in an apartment in Dallas in September of 2018, eating ice cream and watching TV. Doesn't that sound good? A police officer named Amber Amber Geiger got off on the wrong elevator, according to her story, and opened the door, or the door was ajar, and she pushed the door open, thought that she was in her apartment, and shot him and killed him. There was a trial. They finally convicted her of murder, sentenced her to 10 years, lots of conflict, lots of turmoil, lots of publicity. But when they came to the sentencing, this younger brother shared with Amber Geiger several things. He says, I forgive you. Go to God and he will forgive you. I love you and want the best for you. Give your life to Christ. You'd be worth your time to look at that video again. Many of you have already seen it. And then he asked the judge if he could have permission to hug Amber Geiger. And that's exactly what he did. Your brother's been killed. The person who did it's been convicted of murder. And you're saying, I don't want you to go to jail. I want you to trust Jesus. That kind of response takes supernatural power. When you have that kind of response, the world says, whoa. That's somebody I could pay attention to. When they talk about loving people and being a blessing to others. Jesus tells us that when we have the relational wisdom that starts with God's love and we promptly address the conflicts that swirl around us, we encourage peace and enlarge our credibility. That's how God wants to use your life in the week and month and years that lie ahead. Let's pray.